Well, brethren, we are going to be starting two new series today. And I've never done that before. So the prayer before the service is very important to me, as you can well imagine. We're going to begin this morning with an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would please, to Mark chapter 1. This afternoon, after lunch, we'll be beginning a series on the creation ordinances, beginning with an examination of Imago Dei, the purpose of man, and how it ties into the creation ordinances. So uh, an aggressive uh, agenda ahead of us today, but God is good and his word is sufficient. Now I'd like to make some general observations about the gospel before we dive right into the subject. Initially, I want to point out a few things that you may or may not know about Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is generally agreed to be the earliest penned. Primarily, it deals with the public ministry of Jesus in Palestine. It's very short, it's a very succinct, and it's a very purposeful gospel. Some have said that the gospel of Mark, the narrative practically runs. The word straightway and immediately occurs in Mark's gospel 42 times, even though it's the shortest of the gospels. The gospel is anonymously written, and it's not until the second century that we actually find a reference to its authorship, applying that to Mark, who was the interpreter, or perhaps better to say the secretary translator of the apostle Peter. Mark was also known as John Mark. He's first mentioned in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. Now for you children, as a a curious side note, did you know that Mark, church uh, history tells us, had a, a nickname? He was called Stump-Fingered, and that was because he had very short fingers. Mark recorded the testimony of the Apostle Peter regarding Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And in a sense, we may properly think of what we have come to call the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Peter. This is an appropriate study for us, I think, in particular, considering we've just gone through Peter's first epistle. We've accustomed ourselves to the way Peter uses language, his metaphors, his, his manner of speaking, and we're really continuing Peter's discourse. Now, for example, one of the primary characteristics of Mark's gospel is an emphasis on action. That sounds rather like Peter, doesn't it? By way of further example of Peter's signature in the gospel, Mark, or Peter's gospel, recounts the most miracles and the fewest parables. Isn't that interesting? Some have thought that this emphasis on action is a signal of the gospel's particular purpose of speaking to the Romans, the Romans who prized action in the evaluation of a person's character. Your actions were more important to a Roman than your head knowledge. More important than study to a Roman was your behavior. Perhaps it's simply just a mirror of Peter's personality who observed our Lord as a man of action. It's my opinion that probably both are likely true. Now, extra care is also found in the uh, gospel explaining Jewish customs, and we find Latin idioms also in the text, and that tends to also support this idea that the gospel is designed to speak more directly to Romans. And I think that's important, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Now, Paul also speaks of Mark as his companion in Rome in Colossians 4.10 and Philemon 24, and that helps make an even stronger case for the Roman focus attending Mark's gospel. Now, one other notable characteristic of the text points to Peter. <clears throat> You'll recall from our study of 1 Peter that Peter likes to use very vibrant metaphors. 
He speaks of a fiery trial. He talks to us about our faith being refined, more precious than gold. He references the flood. He talks about spirits in prison. Remember those, those references? Satan as a roaring lion. Well, that's Peter for you. And in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see more use of this very vivid and picturesque descriptions of imagery in the Gospel. Now, having whetted your appetite a little bit about the Gospel, I think it's important for us to start to look at the purpose of the Gospel. And I want to give you a threefold purpose for this Gospel. First, generally, let's recognize the obvious. Let's recognize that the gospel's primary purpose is to present the good news about Jesus Christ and to glorify him. Each one of the gospels, this is their primary purpose. We never want to lose sight of that. Salvation has come. It came with a man from God who was the very son of God who was God himself. He was righteous, and he came and he ministered and was crucified to reconcile fallen sinful man to a thrice holy God because of the love and the mercy of God. He accomplished salvation. He rose again and commissioned his disciples to preach the message of salvation and make disciples of every nation. This is the glorious sum of Mark's message. It's a message that's well known and precious to us. This is the primary purpose of Mark's gospel. Let's keep that forward in our thinking. But secondly, let's note that the Gospel of Mark presents this Savior, as I already said, as a man of action. He was no weak, passive, empty-handed man. This was the very Son of God, possessed of power and authority, and he accomplished the will of his Father with energy and with zeal. Peter and Mark want the readers of this Gospel to see our Lord as that kind of man. He was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. He put his hand to do, and what he put his hand to do, he accomplished in the world. Even through his death by crucifixion, he actively accomplished his purpose. Peter and Mark want the readers of this gospel to see that. Peter wanted the Romans to understand and see this Savior that he so admired and he so loved in the light of that powerful action. So keep that in mind as we consider this gospel. Thirdly, let's note that the purpose of Peter specifically is that the Gentile Romans see his Lord, not just as the active, powerful, zealous son of God that he is, not just that they be impressed by it and enamored of it even, but Peter has a specific purpose to speak to those Gentiles. If the Romans admired action and thought in terms of action, and if they like to think of themselves as men of action, a nation of action, well, Jesus was all that as well and so much more. Peter seems to have a heart for the salvation of the Romans, and the gospel that he delivered to Mark to, Mark to pen carries with it his fulfillment of the commission of his Lord to deliver the gospel to the nations, to the Romans in this case. In Mark's gospel, Peter is purposefully and specifically preaching the gospel to a nation of pagans. Now, does that make it useless to a Jew? Of course not. Does it make it useless to us who are not Romans? Of course not. Maybe we're more Roman than we realize. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, let's, talk, let's summarize this idea of purpose and let's look at some application of that purpose. Having noted this threefold purpose in the Gospel of Mark, I can't help but see the application to our nation. We recently finished 1 Peter, and in that book, Peter's telling us how to live as pilgrim. In a, pilgrims in a land of pagans. He's showing these Romans something else. He's showing the Romans how to become pilgrims in a land of pagans. 
It's a little different. In the Gospel of Mark, Peter's telling pagans to become pilgrims, and he's delivering the message. He's showing them an admirable Savior characterized by action and ability and power. This was no mere man. This was the very God in the flesh. And what a compelling person he's delivering to them. In the short time he was among us, during the short years of his ministry, Peter's commenting, look what he accomplished for us. Peter is declaring this to the Romans. You Romans, pay attention. See what has happened. Salvation has come to you from God, and it's been accomplished by his Son, whom you crucified. Now this is a, na- this is a message for our nation as well. I said earlier that I think we're probably more Roman than we realize. I think you'll agree that America is very much like pagan, decadent, decaying Rome these days. We admire action, but we've become complacent. We admire power, but we abuse it. We want to be considered virtuous, but we've lost any sense of what real virtue is. We like to think we have a glorious future, but the judgment of God is our present and our future as a nation. The world system, this fallen kingdom of the earth, has failed people, and we seem to have reached in our nation historic levels of disillusionment among the population. Our nation needs to be shown this admirable, powerful, active, righteous Son of God who accomplished our salvation. Now, Lord willing, in future weeks of study, as we look at this gospel, we'll look for this theme of an active, powerful Savior, and we're going to strive to apply that view of our Lord to our lives and to the purpose of the church reaching out to address the state of the Roman nation in which we live. Now, in order to do that, we're going to have to take the text expositionally a step at a time, one bite at a time. That's the way you eat an elephant, right? Mark chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 initially. Look, if you would, please, in your text, and we'll read aloud, I'll read aloud as you follow along silently. Mark 1, verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now already... As we take this first step in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, which occasionally I'll call the Gospel of Peter, just to remind you, already we see that Peter is calling out with a loud, startling voice to the pagan. Verse 1 reads, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now if there was any question in the minds of the readers of this Gospel what this book is about, The writer removes all doubt. He declares with surprising directness the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now first note the directness of this statement. No equivocating, no easing in of the subject. There's no veneer or clever dialogue here. No head-scratching philosophical discourse. Peter and Mark don't seem to feel the need to somehow win their reader over and try for a soft impact with their message of the gospel. There's no attempt to make the introduction compatible with the Romans' familiarity with Greek philosophy, is there? We know that the Greek way of thinking, to their thinking, the gospel is foolishness. It was a fantastic absurdity. Mark and Peter know this. Give me a a break, a a Greek pagan might say. I, I have better things to do, more intelligent things to consider and talk about than this crazy Christianity. Christianity. 
Now, knowing that the gospel is such a stumbling block to the pagan, there's still no attempt to make the gospel user-friendly, seeker-friendly. The word simply declares itself to the pagan through the apostle, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, surely, brethren, you can appreciate the application for us. The gospel needs no sugar coating. Now, aspirin comes with an enteric coating so that if we ingest it for its medicinal benefits, it doesn't upset our stomachs, right? We want the benefit of the aspirin and just need to avoid the undesirable side effect of a stomachache, which if we can avoid, we'll gladly take the aspirin. We recognize its benefit. The gospel does not require such an enteric coating to make it seeker-friendly. The very premise of thinking that way is wrong-headed. That is, it begins on wrong doctrinal footing. The gospel by nature is a stumbling block and foolishness to the unbeliever. Fallen man is not somehow wandering around desperately groping about in the dark, desperate for the light of the gospel if he can only find it. He's just waiting eagerly for the gospel, which if we will but present with the right veneer of acceptable coating, he'll gladly enthusiastically, energetically ingest it with joy. Just get the coating right and you won't upset his tummy. No, brethren, this is not what the scriptures teach us about the fallen natural state of man. The word tells us that mankind is dead in his trespasses and sins. Men and women and children are at enmity with God. They are against him. They hate his law and the gospel. They prefer darkness instead of light. They are blind leading the blind and they happily fall into the pit. We don't need to coat the gospel and make it user friendly because brethren, there are no users. There is none who doeth good. There's none who seeks after God. The gospel comes as it comes with transforming power when God irresistibly calls fallen, corrupt men, women, and children to repentance and faith in Christ, and they come. This is the gospel declared with plainness and without apology in Mark 1.1. And this should be the heart of our gospel to the lost in our nation as well. Just accept... Just accept this, brethren, that apart from God, your message is a stumbling block. It's foolishness to the unbelieving American. Nothing you can do will change that. But the Spirit of God can. His word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the heart. Maybe the sugar coating that we want to give the gospel may well dull the edge of that sword. Dare we do that? Is it worth the risk? What if Peter's message at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 had been sugar-coated and rendered seeker-friendly? Well, Peter might have thought, I'm talking to Jews. I probably want to ease them into the idea that they sort of killed their Messiah. Had Peter done that, instead of fearlessly declaring, this Jesus whom you crucified, if he had not declared that, would his audience have been cut to the heart? Would they have desperately cried, men and brethren, what shall we do? No, the gospel needs no sugarcoating. Men and brethren, what shall we do is the response we're looking for. It's the power of God. Salvation is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when we declare it, it declares itself. It proceeds under its own power. 
Don't worry over how marching and blowing of horns will work and conquer the walled city. Only know that when we march and blow the horns, the walls will come tumbling down and Jericho will be conquered by the power of God. Thank you, Mark 1.1, for reminding us of this truth. Such is the power of the message that we've been given, brethren. Such is the power of the message that has transformed us. If we need any evidence of his power, we have only to look inside. But brethren, also note not only the directness of the statement, that it requires no sugarcoating. Also note the heart of the statement. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This could be a message of condemnation, rightly so. Mark could have justly written a pronouncement of curse from God. Mankind has surely sinned away any claim on God's goodness and mercy. What goodness or mercy may the clay pot demand of the potter anyways? We could be studying a book of lamentation, could we not? Lamentation for the grace of God passing by Gentiles such as we are. We who are Gentiles could be reading our death sentence. But praise and thank God we are not. This is good news regarding Jesus Christ. This is a message that reaches out with real hope and good promise. It reaches out with glad tidings to the deepest, most urgent, most vital need of the fallen sinner. It addresses the desperate destruction that hangs over the head of the lost sinner. It offers a glorious rescue. Listen to the way the old Scottish Presbyterian minister Samuel Rutherford describes the great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. He starts with this. That is all our happiness. Sinners can do nothing but make wounds that Christ may heal them and make debts that he may pay them and make falls that he may raise them and make deaths that he may quicken them and spin out and make hells to themselves that he may ransom them. Now I bless the Lord that there ever was such a thing as free grace and a free ransom given for sold souls. Only alas, guiltiness makes me ashamed to apply to Christ and to think it pride in me to put out my unclean and withered hand to such a Savior. But it is neither shame nor pride for a drowning man to swim to a rock, nor for a shipwrecked soul to run himself ashore on Christ. This is the heart of our gospel. Brethren, has he not described so well the hope and the joy and the glorious promise of Jesus Christ? Is this not the heart of the good news of the gospel? This is the heart of salvation. It's what we declare to lost men and women and children. Now, by way of a simple application for the church, we need to remind ourselves frequently of this glorious foundational truth. Our message to the pagan is good news. From our Calvinistic point of view, we want to counter the wrong message. And sometimes we tongue-in-cheek say, rather than saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, we'll say something like, God hates you and has a horrible plan for your death. (laughs) Now, I hope we really do only say that tongue-in-cheek, because that's not our message. Yes, Peter declares, you crucified the Messiah. You have engaged in cosmic rebellion, as the late R.C. Sproul would have said. Cosmic rebellion against the infinitely good and holy God. Yes, the headsman's axe floats over your head. It's even now descending, and rightly so. But there is good news. Peter had more to say in Acts chapter 2 than 
just you killed the Messiah. Repent, he said, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There's a promise of forgiveness there. Peter goes on to say, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You who are unholy will be made holy and God will be with you, in you even. You'll be an acceptable dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Imagine that. What a thing to tell a Roman. An acceptable dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Peter says even more, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God calls the sinner to himself. He has not removed his willingness to show his goodness. He comes to you with an irrevocable promise. You have alienated yourself, but he calls you. He has declared that he desires a repaired relationship with you, and he proves it in that he did not spare the life of his beloved son, his only begotten son. He did not spare him so that the conditions for fellowship would be met. And Peter goes on, and we read, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You see, there's a desperate destruction hanging over this generation of wicked rebels. Yes, but there's salvation in Christ. There's deliverance in him. This is the heart of the gospel. It's almost absurdly inadequate to call it good news. This is the good news that we preach in our church. This is the good news that we declare to our friends and our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers. When they wonder what gives us hope, when they wonder in our nation with all its upheaval, what gives you hope and joy and patience and peace? Brethren, this is the good news that we declare to them in answer. This is our answer. Now, as we look at the statement in Mark 1.1, note not only the directness of the statement, note the heart of the statement, but also note the declaration of power behind the statement. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's look at that declaration. That declaration should floor us. We've become so familiar with it, it loses some of its impact. But imagine yourself a pagan Roman who had never heard something like that before. Imagine yourself a pagan Roman who had killed that man. The significance of this emphatic statement can't be missed. It wouldn't have been missed by the Romans. Mark's accentuation of the miracles of Jesus point to the intent of the writer to direct our eyes to the fact that this was not just a man of action. This was a man of power. He was a man of power because he was the Son of God. And perhaps this too points to the impression that walking with our Lord and learning from Him made on Peter. Remember, it was Peter who responded when the disciples were asked by our Lord, who do you say I am? Remember, it was Peter who replied. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ's pedigree was so important to Peter and apparently to Mark as well that the gospel begins with that same statement. To a Roman who worshipped a pantheon of gods and demigods, sons of gods, this was a powerful statement. This Jesus, proclaimed in Mark's gospel, was not some son of some god of the pantheon. He was the son of of the one and only God. Now news of this Christianity had already begun to spread through the empire. There was a great deal of confusion about who this Jesus was, many thinking it's some sect of Judaism. 
Peter makes it clear who he was. He was the son of God. This had happened, you Romans. He had been here, you Americans. The son of God walked among men. And wait, if my memory doesn't fail me, a Roman might ask himself, didn't we crucify him? With the reading of Mark, it was not the first time a Roman would acknowledge that a Jew named Jesus was the Son of God. That had already gotten out. Mark himself tells us that this was declared at the cross. Mark 15, 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed out his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Nor was the Roman the centurion the first to note this earth-shaking reality. Mark tells us in Mark 3.11, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. What Mark declared had already gotten out. This Jesus really was the Son of God. Now the question of proof remained. And Mark handles that well throughout the gospel, as we'll see. Mark will leave no doubt in our minds that truly this man was the Son of God. Now, let's talk about acknowledging the truth of that statement. Just pause for a moment with me and reflect on the absolute necessity of our acknowledgement of this fact, this fact of Jesus being the Son of God. Acknowledge that with me now and consider the implications of that acknowledgement. Our faith is founded on this confession. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Unless Christ is the Son of God, His authority is questionable. Unless Jesus is the Son of God, His motivation is suspect. Unless Jesus is the Son of God, His power is derivative and it's untrustworthy. You can't count on it. You see, our saving faith is founded on the absolute essential certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. The necessity of it. The Apostle John tells us in John 3.18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And why, John? Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you hear how urgent, how important, how vital that acknowledgement is? Unless our confession is Jesus is the Son of God, unless our hope is founded on that certainty, we remain condemned. It's by his very right and power as the Son of God that Jesus calls us to repentance and faith. John 5.25, truly, truly, our Lord said, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. No Son of God, no effectual call. It's in our first faithful response to that call that we declare that Jesus is the Son of God. It's as the Son of God, that Jesus declares to us His power to save us. Remember what He said to Martha when He came to speak to her about the death of her brother Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? And what was Martha's faithful response? She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. John eleven twenty five through 27. You see, Martha grasped the fact that it was really the fact of Christ's deity, the certainty of it as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It was because of that that he had power and authority to raise the dead. 
This is what John declared to us in plain words. John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I said no Son of God, no effectual call. Well, brethren, let's boil it down further. No Son of God, no salvation. Brethren, if our very salvation is founded on this certainty, if Peter and Mark find it so urgent to declare this truth as the very first foundational declaration of the gospel of Mark, we've got to remember this. We have to be certain of this. We have to keep this truth ever before our eyes as God helps us. Our gospel begins with the reality that the Son of God has secured our salvation. We like to think, properly so, of power in the hands of Almighty God and authority there. And that's right. And that's true. But He operated in accomplishing our salvation through His Son. And even the demons knew this and trembled. This was a Son of power and authority. It was the Son of God who declared accomplished on the cross. Not some good man, another fallen child of Adam. He was not merely that. The Romans have this declaration before them in in Mark's gospel now. Jesus was the Son of God. Will they believe Mark's testimony or not? And what's the testimony? The testimony is the word of Mark, the word of Peter. But if they'll not believe Mark's testimony... We'll consider other testimonies. They're right here. The prophet Isaiah declared his coming in verses 2 and 3. We read this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Were there no other witnesses? Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Were there no other witnesses? In those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now as we look at these verses And we'll return to them in greater depth next week. But just for now, note that Mark is making it clear that this was no secret. There were witnesses. The coming of the Son of Man was not done in some dark corner. He came with prophecy, and his coming was not only foretold, it was declared. And there was preparation for his coming. You can almost read it in the subtext of the gospel, almost as if there's a message to the Romans. You Romans have no excuse supposing that the world was left ignorant of the coming of the Son of God. It was foretold. It's been declared. The coming of the Son of God has been prepared. You have been prepared to receive him. Will you now deny him his due? He's due your belief and your worship. Dare you deny him that? Will you ignore the Son of God? Will you do so? And lose your soul? This message of good news is well reported. It comes with a herald and signs and wonders. 
John the Baptist came as a witness. He declared him. And John came with a sign, did he not? Baptism, which made the coming of the Son of God vibrant and real. You could say that John's baptism bathed Israel in an expectation of forgiveness and expiation and restoration. There was a right supplied by God and declared it declared the very purpose of the coming of Jesus. The coming of the Son of God was heralded by a confession of sins. Men and women came to John confessing their sins. There was a work of God inside the very soul of men and women. John is described in detail. We're told what he wore and what he ate. This herald, though he's significant, consider this thought as well. This herald, though he's significant as the prophesied herald of Messiah, the second Elijah, he declares the vast height, even heaven's height above John that this Jesus is. He's the Son of God. John points to this this unearthly deity, declaring that he's not worthy to be counted, that he himself, John, is not worthy to be counted as even the lowest of his servants in the presence of the Son of God. John should not be even loosing his dirty sandal strap. So great is the one before him that he dare not attempt even the most menial act of service. And oh, Romans... If you need any more witnesses, you have the witness of the very voice of God and the sight of the endowment of His Spirit. You have God's declaration from the sundered heavens in the sight and the hearing of witnesses, you are my beloved Son. What more could they need? (laughs) How better could Peter and Mark have started this gospel and declared the truth of the message, the power, the coming, the authority, of the Son of God. I can think of no way better. Well, let's try to tie this up into a bow for ourselves. What does all this mean? What does this all mean? Well, brethren, let me tell you several things that it means. It means that our gospel is real. It is reasonable and verified by history and witnesses. And brethren, by God himself, how utterly without shelter will the unbeliever be in the day of judgment? No excuse for Romans. No excuse for Americans. That the Son of God has come to deal with man's sin is no secret. It's been declared now for two millennia and longer if you read the prophecies before Christ's coming. The problem is not that men and women and children have not heard only, but that they refuse to believe and so they're without excuse. That's what this means. What does all this mean? It means kiss the Son of God lest he be angry. Psalm 2 verse 12. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. To deny the gospel is to deny the very Son of God. And he will deal with sin one way or another. There will be expiation or there will be wrath when he returns and brings judgment with him. If the Roman chooses to dishonor the Son, that man the Son will dishonor before his Father in heaven. There is no other way. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. What does this all mean? Well, I just said that to deny the gospel is to deny the Son. Now let me reverse that. Listen, to deny the Son is to deny the gospel. 
Any who present a gospel without the deity of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, they offer another gospel which is not the gospel. There is no good news in another, in, in and another, another man. There's no good news in some man offering his blood to reconcile me to God. There's no good news in some fellow offering by the virtue and the power of his nature to secure my pardon and peace with God. There's no good news in the dust of the earth resurrecting my body and bringing me into the presence of the Almighty, holy and undefiled. I need the Son of God. Very man, very God. And brethren, so do you. And so does our nation. What does all this mean? It means, brethren, we should pray anathema or repentance, one or the other, on any who peddle a gospel that refuses to acknowledge the power and the glory and the virtue and the excellency of Jesus, the Son of God, in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Such an evangelist is no evangelist, but rather a messenger of Satan, and we shouldn't even greet them with a common hello as we pass them on our way. Their false gospel is leading men and women and children into hell and robbing our Lord of his glory. What does all this mean? It means we know to declare to lost men and women that our Savior has power and authority to deal with our sin because he is the Son of God. Because our Savior is the Son of God. He has free access to the Father to intercede for us. We declare to a lost and condemned world that our good news is really good news because it's a message that comes from the very Son of God. We may boldly declare that he's reliable, he's faithful, he's worthy of our trust, he's able to save to the uttermost those who put their trust in him because he is the Son of God and the Son of God cannot fall and the Son of God cannot fail. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he continually lives to make intercession for us. That's what it means to have a Savior who's the Son of God. That is something only the Son of God can do. That's a gospel I can own. Brethren, that's a gospel that saved you. Amen? Amen. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.